Hi, I'm Heather Bell, and welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs, where we get together every other week to talk shop with some of the smartest women in ETFs. Today, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Kashner, Director of Global Funds Research at FactSet, and Lois Gregson, Senior ETF Analyst, also at FactSet. It's great to have you both on the pod, and I'm totally ready to nerd out with you. (laughs) Great. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth and Heather. I can't think of anything better than nerding out with you and Lois. Woohoo! I've been excited about this all week. I guess I just wanted to start off with Elizabeth and Lois. What do you think were the biggest ETF developments of 2022? Elizabeth, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I think I'll start uh, with the obvious, which is that despite the route that we saw in both equity and fixed income markets, we had positive flows into U.S. ETFs and um, not just positive, but second highest year ever. You know, that was not a given. And so I think it's worth taking a minute to really recognize uh, the appeal of the ETF wrapper despite terrible markets. Absolutely. The resilience was really impressive this year. I think what really got my attention, you know, during 2022 is the continuation in, in the acceleration actually of fund conversions. That's something that interests me and intrigues me to, and it excites me. Uh, to see that finally, um, you know, some mutual fund companies are seeing the light, so to speak, and, and really seeing the benefits of the ETF structure for investors and seeing those conversions work um, and showing that it can be done. And um, just it, it's exciting to see. And I think we're just beginning. So the potential also is what excites me. Um, so it's I think that was a a good success during 2022 when we were looking for if there's any kind of glimmer of hope uh, with things that in the markets and the performance, if nothing else, seeing that transition happen was exciting for me. Oh, absolutely. I was talking with Eric Balchunas from Bloomberg uh, last week, and he was talking about how he predicted uh, the uh, converted ETF um, trend would equal about 1 trillion in assets within the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was interesting was he had a podcast recently where there were uh, white label issuers like Alpha Architect, Exchange Traded Concepts, and Toroso Investments. And they were talking about how they've gotten a lot of interest um, from you know firms that want to convert their uh, their mutual funds to ETFs. And it it struck me that that's, you know, smaller firms looking to get into the ETF space via their mutual funds. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting. It's just, you know, when people hold on to their landlines, you know, it's like, okay, you know, it's always been there, but when you can have a cell phone, (laughs) you know, why not? You know, you, you want some transparency and flexibility and, and if nothing else, you know, the cap, the, the tax efficiency, you know, of the strategy, um, it's just, it's hands down a better structure and it's proven itself. So why wouldn't you, you know, to, to provide that to your investors? Um, you know, I think it's, it really, you have to think about that if you're, you're offering your strategy still in a mutual fund, um, 
you know, so many uh, people start looking at that more closely, especially when you have a market like we've had, you know, or had in 2022, where, you know, you could have negative performance and a tax bill. Um, you really have to question, you know, is there a better way? Um, and I think that's what people are coming to the realization that uh, I need to look into that and really start um pursuing that. So I, I think, you know, there are some complexities to doing it and, and doing it well. Um, but I think we're proving that it can be done and seeing that success rate, I think others are going to start to notice. Absolutely. Lois, I'd say that's just, that's such a good point about the tax bill and, you know, how much clients really hate paying taxes that are triggered by somebody else's act activity and not their own. I think that's, you know, a, a, not to be undersold for sure. And yet, despite how strong a point that is, you know, I did take a look at um, the 2022 flows, excluding conversion amounts for the funds that did convert um, this past calendar year. And honestly, the afterflows were really not that great. There were, um, 18 funds by my count. And um, on average, they took in an additional 8 million a piece, which is really not that much, summed up to about 146 million all told. Um, you know, and, and for about half of them, frankly, the post flows were negative, they were outflows. So um, I do not see much evidence that. Um, converting is the panacea for um, a struggling business. So, you know, while I do agree that issuers are going to, um, to see the value and are going to, you know, sort of wonder what, what took them so long, um, whether they see salvation, I think is another question. There's no question that, you know, if, if the strategy isn't working in a mutual fund, um, it doesn't automatically mean success in, if it's an ETF. So I, I think you're right. I don't think you see dollars automatically flow to it, but it, I do think it's a better wrapper. And if you can provide some kind of a service to your clients to say, I have your interest at heart and I'm always looking to improve and do something better. I think that's the better angle um, and better opportunity that as a, a fund provider, you know, an issuer, can provide, I mean, that's what you're looking for. You want to show that confidence, you know, to investors that look, I'm always looking to improve and looking to provide in your best interest. So I still think it's worth it. Well, it might not be, again, a lot of that I think can be the market conditions that you're in. Um, it, and yes, it doesn't wave the magic wand that suddenly now people will buy into it. Um, when it's a difficult market, it's a difficult market. Um, but if you can provide something better for them, definitely people have to look at it. Elizabeth, what you said about like, you know, these, if you convert a fund that isn't very successful, it's still going to be a largely unsuccessful ETF. But what I noticed is that like the biggest funds that converted also had the most inflows. So the dimensional ETFs, uh, I think one of the JP Morgan ETFs, they were all kind of like very, pretty far up there in terms of they were already big funds, but then they mm -hmm. pulled more. Um in their ETF after post ETF conversion. 
it's kind of like, finally, I think there were a lot of people, I know dimensional because it was announced ahead of time. And I think so many people were already kind of hoping that they would make that transition. So it was good to see. I think it's just uh, good to see that people like that. Or in Capital Group too, I think um, there were a lot of people looking for them to make that conversion. And it's good to see that finally happening. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And dimensional, especially, you know, they've just invested so much in their um, client education function. They have some of the most loyal clients in the mm -hmm. business. And I right. think they just, they had a ton of pent up demand. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would push back a little bit against thinking about size as um, some sort of a, a guarantee, right? Because uh, the second biggest conversion that we saw in calendar year 22, JIRE, JP Morgan International Research Enhanced Equity ETF, mm -hmm. um, its afterflows were negative following mm -hmm. conversion on a net basis. That's true. But also, I mean, then there's, but there's also the fact that the market environment may not have been hospitable to a lot of these strategies. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I do wonder how much that affected things. Yeah, it certainly could have been. Lois, I think this is a question you'll probably like. I, I feel like I've been seeing a lot more funds that implement option strategies. Yes. Um, that kind of because they're running out of new twists and regular on just plain vanilla equities. And they're, uh, or is it that, you know, investors are becoming more sophisticated? <laughs> well, Actually, a little bit of both. And, well, I don't think, no, I, I first, your first premise is, are they running out of ideas? No, I don't think there's ever kind of a, a short um, or, or a limit to ideas. I think everybody's kind of trying to think of new ways and um, that's not the issue. But I do think um, people are looking for easier ways. Um, you're always looking for, can I make this easier? Can I make this more efficient? And that's, Honestly, that's what the ETF wrapper was all about, um, you know, the lower cost and, and greater efficiencies and, and um, tradability, that type of thing. Um, so, yes, that's exciting for me, um, having kind of come up th through the industry and the options market. Um, it's exciting to see that we're making this a little bit easier because uh, investors do want those tools. And especially in this kind of market that we've seen when there's so much uncertainty and, you know, you want to stay invested, you want to stay committed, but yet, um, you know, you don't want to kind of go in blindly. You want some kind of, um, some kind of buffer, some kind of support, um, something in there. So it's good to see options being used and the options tools, you really, you kind of need to know how to use them and it does require a little bit more, more sophistication um, to use them properly. So having a portfolio manager employ them, you know, and, and employ the strategy properly, it's a relief. And like I said, it makes it a lot easier for, you know, for the investor and for an advisor who maybe wants to put it into a portfolio. Um, you're making it more efficient use of their time. They're not managing individual positions, having to worry about an expiration dates and premiums and such, or even just the ticket charges that may be involved. You know, if, if I'm an RIA and I'm looking to employ a similar strategy in the platform, you know, I'm going to get a ticket charge for each one of those trades. I can do it with all within the ETF wrapper in one ticket. Uh, that makes it a lot easier. Yeah, I'm sure. And also probably cheaper, I would assume. 
Well, like I say, you know, we, if if you're an RIA and you're you know buying the stock and doing the options, you're getting a ticket charge for each one of those legs, you know, of the transaction. So yes, you immediately cut that down into one transaction. Um, again, much more efficient for them, um, less costly in a ticket charge, and they don't have to worry as much about you know the am I managing for managing for a expiration date or do I need to trade this. Um, you know, how am I doing that? It's already done for you within that portfolio. I do think it does require though monitoring. Um, it still requires you to check to see, you know, are the the limits kind of in place with what you're looking for? Um, but it it's less in terms of day-to-day -day management, less worry. Absolutely. Yeah, isn't it great to be able to talk to somebody who you know has spent a ton of time on an options desk and really knows how those things work? I think it's just amazing. Yeah, back in the day, we would have a long ream and you'd have to go line by line trying to decide, are you going to roll the position? Or are you going to close it out? What are you going to do to have it done for you? It's a huge relief. Yeah, Lois, you are my options guru. Anytime I'm story about <laughs> and I run screaming to you. <laughs> Very well deserved. I, I would say, though, that for all of the upsides of the product um, that Lois mentioned, um, I do worry sometimes that um, from a wealth point of view or an individual investor point of view, that um, there is additional education that's needed on these products. It isn't always happening. Uh, so uh, two points here. One is that um, I don't know if most users understand that um, they're really giving up a lot when they do go into a product like this, because um, this is a product that delivers the price return of the index and not the total return. So you don't get any of the dividends, which in a normal year do comprise a pretty large portion of um, positive return that you get. And so, um, you know, for people who sort of think to themselves, oh, well, you know, I could hold the S&P 500 for three basis points, or I could hold an option strategy and, you know, for approximately 80 basis points, I can have a lot of downside protection and I'll maybe give up a little upside and, hey, isn't that great? I don't know that um, the analysis is really happening to go and say, well, wait a minute, you know, within those option bands, how does the performance compare to the S&P 500? And what, you know, what am I really giving up here? Um, and I did, you know, because these funds were so popular this year, um, I did take the opportunity to um, do a longer term comparison of um, if you had held uh, these funds since inception on average, um, this in, since inception is a little bit tricky because they had um, rolling launch dates. And so I had to kind of uh, factor that in, but you know, it, the last one launched on um, April 30th, 2020. And so if you'd hold, held them all from then through the end of December, if you just held the straight S and P 500, you would have earned 12.6%. If you held the buffer series on average, it would have been dropped to 7.7% and the power buffers 6.0% and the ultra buffers 7.2%. So, you know, while they, absolutely offered a ton of protection this past year. Uh, 
in general, that's protection that comes at a price. And I'm not convinced that uh, wealth managers are really focused on that. I'm not a behavior finance person by any means, but just kind of following that study and, and why someone that would buy into a strategy, if I am capping my upside and giving up so much, why am I still interested in that? It gets back to, you know, I feel the pain and the loss more than I do in the gain missed, you know, um, I think that's part of it. it. Just looking at a pure investor standpoint, I, I understand what you're saying, Elizabeth. I do see that, you know, you are giving up quite a bit um, and perhaps we're not covering that as much as we should with investors. But I still think, you know, as an advisor, if you're looking at this in the best interest of an investor, they're going to feel the pain on the downside more. And in this kind of a market, that's not such a bad position to be in, I think. My opinion. <laughs> I've always seen them as kind of like a product that was ideal really for uh, a retiree or someone with like a definite uh, time horizon, like ending to their time horizon. I don't know if I put that correctly, but that's how I've been looking at them, I think. Yeah. Or just concern over a period of time. You know, maybe it's not something you um, look for to hold all the time, um, perhaps Maybe it's just the market conditions, you know, for the next quarter, and then you take a look at it or something like that. That could also be used. I think that's that's what they would appeal to, or is someone that has that concern. So I was also curious about active non-transparent ETFs or active semi-transparent ETFs. Are they still simmering on the back burner? Or are they kind of like fizzling out? Because there weren't a lot of launches of that nature this year. That's correct. I mean, uh, Heather, you're, I think you're you're right. I mean, in terms of launches, if you look at that, um, you don't see that being the attractive um, need or, or requirement uh, or interest, I guess, is what I'm seeing. Um, I don't know, Elizabeth, if you have any thoughts on that? You know, I think prior to that product launch, there were a lot of analysts who were saying um, that... Um, active non-transparent was a solution in, in search of a problem. Um, I believe that's largely been played out. Uh, and I think honestly, it's for the good because from an investor point of view, transparency is an asset. It has some value, especially with um, some of the more complex portfolios that um, you know may have some real uh, times of strength in the market and some times of uh, real weakness in the market. And so a wealth manager, you know, would then kind of need to be uh, monitoring that position really carefully. It's not easy to monitor a position when you can't see what's inside of it. Um, and so I, you know, I do think there's a value to, uh, to that ability. And uh, I'm glad that on the whole, the market seems to have agreed. Yeah, I, I my my whole takeaway was just that ETF investors really appreciate transparency. And that was like making an actively managed fund non-transparent probably doesn't convey as much advantage in the eyes of someone who is accustomed to ETFs. When I think even the active, the, the portfolio managers, you know, that have launched active products and we are seeing more active strategies brought to market. And we did see that in 2022, um, which is good to see, um, you know, kind of helping to take that 
connotation that ETFs are only passively managed or only index trackers, um, you can see that it can be done. But I think, you know, the portfolio managers are showing that you can actively manage a transparent portfolio and still get your ideas employed and still be able to make a good portfolio manager can do that. And I mean, look at the ARC ETFs. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Fully transparent. And Mm -hmm. they're also very active. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And have specific ideas that they're targeting and and very open and, and, and can do it, can get that, that position. So I don't know. I, I think as a portfolio manager, you have to think about that. Um, the other trend that kind of had me, I don't know, I, I don't know where it's going to go, um, uh, single stock ETFs, mm. their, their assets are so like kind of lopsided, everything seems to be going into Tesla uh, related funds in that space. I mean, what what do you both see as, I guess, unfolding with these products? <laughs> I'm an ETF purist. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, when I think of ETFs, I like diversification. Um, and so the, the single stock approach, uh, leverage single stock approach doesn't necessarily appeal to me in terms of labeling them as ETFs, but obviously they are, they're structured that way and I get it. But I guess, you know, I don't know that we're doing investors a favor by doing this, by putting this into a wrapper that can be easily confused. Um, you know, back in what was it, 08, 09, where, you know, ETF investors were saying, I didn't even know this thing was leveraged. Um, you know, I think we're kind of opening ourselves up, the industry up to more, I guess, um, black eyes with uh, offering that type of product. Um, but again, that's me. I, you know, I look at ETFs as more of a diversification vehicle, and this doesn't deliver that. It's so well said, Lois. I really <laughs> appreciate your thoughtfulness on this. Um, you know, back in the day, you know, we often would get questions along the lines of, well, I'm really interested in Apple and I want to know how I can get Apple in an ETF. And my answer to that was always, for goodness sake, if you want Apple, buy Apple right? That there's a reason that you can buy the single stocks. And so uh, I feel like in a way it's kind of come full circle and exactly what Lois said, that um, the real feature here to be aware of is not the single stock exposure, it's the geared exposure and that it comes with a daily reset that can wind up over a longer period of time, giving you returns that are you know much greater or less than the ratio that you would have expected. Uh, you know, I, I think these are, are very sharp tools and they're really hard even for professionals to use right. And so thinking about how retail investors might use them, yeah, I think there there's reason to worry. Um, and, you know, we did see a lot of investors piling into some geared funds in 2022, uh, specifically um, TQQQ and SOXL, um, 3X exposure on the NASDAQ 100 and on semiconductors. And, you know, there are undoubtedly investors out there who held that position way long and lost 95, 98, 99% of the cash that they invested. I really have to wonder how prepared they were for that. That's a good point. <laughs> There, I, I feel like leveraged and inverse is like great for a very sophisticated investor, but I think for 
the average bear, it's kind of like playing with fire. I like to see ETFs solve a problem. I, I really do. And, and as Elizabeth pointed out earlier, you know, sometimes, you know, we're a solution looking for a problem. And in a way, I kind of think that's what these projects have done is that what are we really providing to investors that they couldn't get by either buying a stock, buying it on margin, um, buying a put option. I mean, there are options. I mean, obviously I came up, like I said, through options. So I have a, a my heart goes out to the options market there. You could you can buy single stock options and, and use them that way. And if you truly understand them, you, you meet those um, suitability standards. There's a separate agreement that you come to that you understand. Um, I think that's the way to go. Um, but again, you know, it is what it is. We'll see. Well, Elizabeth and Lois, we'll have to end it there. Thank you so much for joining this was a ton of fun. Heather, thanks for having me. Uh, congratulations on the ETF.com awards, I have to say. Thanks. I was glad to see that come back. Me too. Me too. It's always an interesting and really fun event, I think. Listeners, thanks for joining us as well. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. For all episodes of ETF Working Lunch, please check out ETF.com or any of the major podcast platforms. See you next time.